Hey, cashiers. We Have the Receipts podcast is coming at you live from Netflix is a Joke Fest in Los Angeles. Chris, are you kidding? No, Netflix is a joke, Courtney, but this is not one of them. Our listeners in LA have the chance to join us for a live recording of our podcast, We Have the Receipts, hosted by me, Chris Burns. And me, Courtney Revolution. Join us and a few surprise guests from your favorite Netflix reality shows on Saturday, May 4th at 1 p.m. at a secret location in Hollywood. To be announced. Get your tickets for the We Have the Receipts live show at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. That's todoom, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash We Have the Receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix original true crime stories. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, your host. Each episode, we take a close-up look at a true crime narrative, documentary, or series, and I talk to the people who made them, diving deep into the backstories and getting answers to questions raised by what we just watched. This week, a documentary, Crack, Cocaine, Corruption, and Conspiracy. I sit down with Stanley Nelson, the film's director. A note to listeners, this episode contains spoilers, so remember to watch the film and then listen on. In the early 1980s, the crack epidemic tore through America like a tsunami, ravaging all in its wake. And the destructive effects on people's lives, families, and communities are still deeply felt decades later. Crack, Cocaine, Corruption, and Conspiracy examines the drug's devastation, shadowy origins, and the ongoing criminalization of black and brown people in the U.S. prison and healthcare systems. Just say no. It felt extraordinarily hypocritical. This was happening at a time when the U.S. government was turning a blind eye to cocaine smuggling. Our goal was to defeat communism in Central America. And if that meant drugs got in and the youth of America used them, well, that was the way it was going to be. We knew that they were in on it. We knew that they were dealing on the side. What would you steal? Money and drugs and guns, whatever was it. That was kind of like chemical warfare on black communities. It's a story that has to be told. Stanley Nelson, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you. It's great to be here. One of the things that you point out in your film, I think, to great effect is the way that media and pop culture put a lens on crack and the rise of crack in a way that was, in fact, quite racist and, you know, basically characterized neighborhoods, establishing shots in, you know, films about cities would show people dealing crack on the streets, always black. Uh, You know, it was sort of this the character of, you know, the crack mom. You sort of have a couple of clips in there from from different films. Can you talk about when you first started looking at the media of crack and seeing how what a contrast it was to the reality of what was really going on? Yeah, I mean, I think from the very beginning of making the film, we we felt that we would turn a lens on the media, that the media was such 
uh, played such a big role in in the crack epidemic and you know uh, labeling it as the crack era and and either ignoring the problem either ignoring uh, crack or then kind of overblowing the the dealing and, and the use of crack in black and Latino neighborhoods so I think from from the very beginning we felt that the media w- was huge in, in telling the story. I think about that a lot now. I mean, in the last few years, the way the story of the opioid crisis has been told on the news and in the media is handled with so much more sensitivity and empathy than, you know, the story of the rise of crack was in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, it's it's pretty clear it's because, you know, it, the opioid crisis is touching middle class white people. And, it, and it's sort of going beyond what I think a lot of people think of as the other. You know, it's, it's often called the inner city, which is an expression that I, I'm kind of I grapple with using because it's often used, you know, sort of to describe the otherness of those communities. Have you been paying attention to the way the opioid crisis has been covered and how different it is from the way the rise of crack was covered? Yeah, I, I think that that's really important to the film. But, you know, we, we had to kind of walk a fine line because we, you know, the, the film is about the 80s and the 90s, and we didn't want to constantly, you know, um, you know, push ahead to today. But we hoped that through the film that it made you think about today. And then finally, in the last, you know, five or 10 minutes, uh, we have a couple of bites that, that actually refer to uh, the opioid epidemic and how differently that's covered. But I think that, you know, anybody that's awake and aware and kind of looking at what's going on will, will understand the difference in the way the crack era was portrayed and, and the way that the opioid epidemic is portrayed as sensitive to the fact that, that these are human beings and their lives are, are ruined. And, you know, one of the interviews at the end says, never did I feel that the world cared about me. I was sentenced to prison six different times. You would have thought someone would have said that you don't have a criminal problem. You have an alcohol or a drug problem. And there's help for that but I was never offered any help. And I read the papers today, and I look at the approach to opioid use, and you hear about a health approach, not a criminal approach. I'm 21 years sober now. Wasn't I worth an investment in treatment? It's really astonishing to me, too, to hear the stories about just institutions across the board turning their backs on uh, people who were addicted. I mean, the story that really struck home with me and was incredibly painful to hear about, and I imagine it was a very, very common tale, was of a woman, a subject in your film, who was using crack and who was pregnant and who went to, like, basically told her doctor, like, I need help. And they and the doctor's response was to call the authorities. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's that's again, you know, a, a very poignant and painful story. Um, but but also, you know, the, the the fact that she was actually charged with delivering cocaine to her baby in the like ten seconds before the umbilical cord was cut. Hmm. You know, one that's kind of a crazy notion, but two there's no evidence that actually cocaine was delivered to the baby 
at that point. It really is amazing how you bust the myth of the crack baby, which is a myth. It's an American myth. I, I you know, it, it's a it's a term that should never have been coined. And it's also, you know, the statistics don't bear out, right? There isn't the same kind of data to show the effects of crack on babies as there is, for instance, to show the effects of alcohol on babies, A something that is not punished uh, punitively in the same way that crack was, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we show from various news reports, the kind of insane reporting that was going on, you know, that hundreds of thousands of babies would be born in in New York City alone to crack mothers, and they would overwhelm the school system and just kind of unfounded claims and show that, you know, how kind of overblown um, and so much hyperbole Um, But that was what was reported. That was what we remember from the time. Another thing that you touch on in the documentary that, you know, is it's present in the opioid story, but it's a story that I had never heard before was sort of the origin, like where crack came from, how it was developed, how it became the drug of choice. And we see now in the opioid era, all these pharmaceutical companies actually being taken to task, having to pay these huge restitution fines, you know, paying state settlements. And there doesn't seem to be that kind of accountability for crack, even though, its origins are traceable. I found that story fascinating, sort of the government's culpability in the rise of crack in the United States. Can you just talk about what it's like to to not have those consequences being played out? Yeah, I mean, I I think that back at the end of the crack era and and even, you know, in the middle of of the crack epidemic, people in the the African-American community were trying to call the government to task. But it's the federal government, you know, and, and so it's very hard to hold the federal government accountable. You have former congressional aide Eric Sterling in the documentary, and he talks pretty candidly about how a lot of the policies and laws was based on nothing. And he's able to talk so candidly about that now. And I'm wondering what it was like to do that interview with somebody who was there who is just being so transparent about the fact that it was all theater. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, as a filmmaker, you know, it's great when you have a source who can be so honest and so candid about what happened. He was inside. He was inside as the decisions were being made and, and, and as the politicians were just piling on and piling on and making uh, the laws against even possession of, of a tiny amount of crack cocaine so hideous and so harmful to so many people. Now, I think some of the most fascinating sources in your documentary are the people who were directly involved in the crack economy and crack use. Can you talk about how you got Samson Stiles, the former crack dealer, to be such an important source in this film? Yeah, Samson has done a lot of work on crack and is really, you know, so outspoken and so well-spoken. And, you know, he started out as a kid, you know, working in McDonald's and and ends up as kind of a major crack dealer and ends up being shot, you know, five times. Um, And, and, you know, just kind of digging it. And and we talked to Samson and he was just incredible. Actually, he's kind of a consultant on the film because he led us to other people who were affected by crack. And I mean, I, I think that's one of the strengths of the film is that we have so many people directly involved in the crack economy, you know, who sold crack, who used crack, and who saw their neighborhoods and their lives affected by this drug. 
I was so glad you included that McDonald's commercial. Hey, isn't that Calvin? I haven't seen him for a while. Wonder where he's heading. I heard he got a job. Is that right? I remember that commercial so viscerally and so well. It was on the air all the time when I was growing up in the greater New York area. And when looking at it now, it really is such an empty promise. I mean, there is this whole, of course, the empty promise of the American dream and the pulling up by the bootstraps, which is just a false promise to most people. But that McDonald's commercial is such a great distillation of all of the messaging around young black people. And like, if only you do this thing, everything will be fine. And the thing that they're selling doing is working at McDonald's behind a cash register. It was really, really smart, I think, to include that in the film. Yeah, it was really it was really fun to include it because, you know, like everybody um, who was around in that era, you know, you remember that commercial because it was it was in some ways such a, a microcosm of the era. And it was so ridiculous. Um, and that, you know, Samson can can talk directly about the commercial because he worked at McDonald's. And when he was offered the chance to sell crack, it was like, OK, you know, I, you know, I can do this. And, and make real big money. And, and that's something that, that so many people in, in African-American communities and Latin communities, you know, saw. Yeah. I mean, it really feels like the actual achievement of the American dream when you're actually making real money. You're not making $3 an hour. You're making hundreds or sometimes thousands of dollars a day. It's really not hard to imagine making that same choice. I have to say, like when people say they, they can't imagine how anybody could make these choices, I'm like, what are you talking about? It's so easy to imagine. And then his explanation of, you know, his like sort of ethics around it, you know, she's going to buy it from someone. Why not me? I mean, that's capitalism. That's that's an American message. And if you're living in this country, I don't understand when people say, I don't get it. How could that how could that choice have been made? I mean, do you? No, I mean, I, I think that, that hopefully what we, what we uh, show in the film is very clear. You know, it's a choice between, you know, working at McDonald's and, and making, you know, minimum wage or it's, it's making, you know, hundreds or thousands of dollars a day standing on the street corner, hanging out with your friends, you know, and, and, you know, and, and the pretty girls go by and there's no cops. You know, that's the thing that, that, that we have to show in, in the beginning. And, and I think that that really stands out that at first there, the police weren't policing the, the African-American and Latino communities. You know, we show a film of cars lined up and people running out, you know, to sell them crack in broad daylight. Um, there was no policing. So it wasn't that that, you know, you were too worried about getting arrested at least at first. Why don't people ever talk about the fact that more white people were crack users than black people? I, I think that, that, you know, for a few reasons, but I think one of the main reasons is that African-Americans were allowed to sell crack outside in the open. Hmm. So, and, and white people came to buy crack and African-American and Latino people were involved in the actual economy in a larger degree than white folks. You know, in the film, you see, you know, white people pulling up in cars, white people, you know, on the street buying. But a lot of the time they're going into black neighborhoods to buy because in black neighborhoods, at, at first there was no policing at all. And people, you know, just sold openly on the streets. 
I want to talk about the Len Bias story because this really was a moment where America started paying attention to the crack era in a different way and the crack epidemic in a different way. Why do you think his story bubbled up and became the touchstone that triggered so much coverage and so much attention on this problem? Yeah, well, Lynn Bias was a star basketball player at the University of Maryland, and he was drafted um, by the Boston Celtics. And in celebration of him being drafted and being a high draft choice, he and and some of his friends uh, used cocaine, and he OD'd. And I think he had a heart condition or something, and he died. And that was headline news. All of a sudden, politicians and journalists became almost obsessed with crack that they had ignored, you know? I mean, the people were dealing crack on the streets. You could look out your windows in in some cases, you know, walk down the streets, drive down the streets in black and Latino neighborhoods and see crack everywhere. But all of a sudden now it became a big deal and a big deal to politicians and to the media. It's really stunning to me that that was the trigger for that. I mean, it speaks. We see this story again and again and again. I mean, we saw it somewhat uh, during the height of the AIDS crisis when Magic Johnson contracted AIDS. And and that sort of put, you know, the crisis in a new light because somebody who was relatable, somebody who was likable, somebody, frankly, that middle class white people found promising and relatable was afflicted. And then all of a sudden, now it's a problem. Like, forget the millions of other people who have suffered, who have died, who've been incarcerated and and, and talking about crack. I mean, it's Len Bias that triggers it. And it just, to me, just points to another aspect of this that is just really a hallmark of just how racist this country is in taking this young black man. And like his death mattered very differently than these other you know, deaths mattered. Yeah, it, it's somebody of value. Right. And so, oh, we have to now be concerned with it. Um, and, and a lot of times, you know, the, the concern is misplaced. Uh, oh, my God, now we have to do something and we have to make laws against possession of a tiny amount of crack. Uh, I think it's like 100 times, uh, you know, more cocaine will get the same sentence as, you know, um, a tiny, like a gram of, of crack. So, you know, th- there's concern, but but also there's concern in, in one way. There's concern for the people who are selling and using crack only to lock them up and to get them out of the way. Isn't this part of that fabric of what one of your subjects calls like the trauma of poverty that, you know, being poor is one thing. Being black and poor is a whole different kind of trauma. And just being ignored by society, just cast off, not cared about. When things happen in your communities, no one pays attention. Uh, isn't that part of that trauma? Isn't that part of that, the reason why there is so much trauma? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the things that's interesting is someone makes the, the trauma comment in the beginning of the film where we're talking about, you know, um, just, you know, using drugs in general that when you're in a traumatized community, you know, you look at something to relieve the trauma, something to relieve the heaviness of life, um, and, and drugs were naturally turned to. How have you seen the sort of the lasting marks of this in your community, in New York in particular? Because that is kind of the epicenter of a lot of your film and also the epicenter of a huge part of this story. I mean, I, I think the thing that it's reflected in, in a number of different ways. You know, one people are still incarcerated. 
for drug possession, and it just raised, you know, the stakes of, of and and it's and it was possession. Finally, it was not, you know, it was not drug dealing. It was just, you know, a, a small amount of drugs, and, and people are are still in jail, or it's still on their record, and they can't do certain things. Also, I think it's reflected in the heightened militarization of the police. You know, I think that we were all shocked when the George Floyd protests broke out across the country, you know, that, that police departments, you know, all, all over from L.A. to New York um, came out in heavy armor. You know, they looked like something out of Star Wars, you know, or the tanks that were brought out, you know, in Ferguson. And all of that kind of is traced back to the war on drugs and to, you know, money pouring in to local police departments to, quote, fight the war on drugs. It really does seem like the government, when there's ever a crisis in the United States, because a lot of that money flowed more to police departments in the post 9-11 era through Patriot Act funding and this idea of the militarization of the police is a good thing. It, it really does rise from this, this idea that, uh, you know, we're fighting an enemy. But the enemy is our fellow citizens. I mean, that just that imagery strikes me so frequently as just so unjust uh, and so wrong, especially when you understand that the government itself had a hand in creating this crisis. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that, because you do get into the history, the Reagan era, the Iran-Contra affair, and then the, the turning a blind eye to cocaine smuggling in order to make political deals what is your take on that specific culpability? Because I know there's also been some conspiracy theories about the rise of crack in the United States. I'm wondering where you land. Like, what does that look like to you? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we were very careful in doing in the film is, you know, not pushing conspiracy theories, you know, and and, and there's a lot of them. You know, I think that, that one of the things that, that people told us over and over again, you know, reporters and people in government, was that the Reagan-era government... Um, at the worst, helped smugglers smuggle drugs. At the very least, turned a blind eye to smugglers smuggling drugs. What they were concerned with was Nicaragua and fighting communism in Central America. And so through the Iran-Contra affair, they were flying weapons uh, and money down to Central America. And they were dealing with very shady characters. And those shady characters then, okay, we've got planes, we're in Nicaragua, we're in Central America, we've got to go back to the States, let's load them up with cocaine. And they did that over and over again. And the price of cocaine fell so much that it was profitable to now cook it down and cook out all the impurities and sell it as crack. I just keep thinking about that going on at the same time Nancy Reagan is out there with her just say no messaging. And to me, the just say no campaign is very much about stoking fear, because I think about what happens if you come across somebody who is a user. You think like, oh, they just they couldn't just say no. Like They, they must be damaged in some way or, you know, that I, we, need, we need to sort of put them away, stay away from those people. Do you think the Just Say No campaign was as divisive as I think it was? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think it was divisive and I think it was ridiculous. Yeah. You know, I mean, the solution is just say no. <laughs> you know what? I, I mean, OK. Yeah, it's it's not it's, it's no solution to, to the problem. Right. I think Samson says, you know, it was a gold rush to the hood. You know, I mean, it, it was a gold rush. It, it, it was, you know, a, a way to make money 
and in some ways young people became real kingpins in the drug trade and it ended badly for you know 99.9 percent of them and we say that at the end of the film you know with it with being shot with going to jail but at first they saw it as a way to make money um with without working crappy jobs um and there was not a lot of risk of, of being arrested you interviewed a lot of people who had suffered a lot of trauma. And I'm wondering, I mean, you're a really experienced documentarian, and I, I'd love to know how you do this. You know, talking to people who've had remarkably difficult experiences and, and really wanting to capture those experiences so that the viewer really understands and, and feels and gets it. How do you strike that balance when you're with somebody and, you know, really asking them to lay themselves bare on film? I think that that so many people, you know, want to talk about their experiences. You know, that's what I've found, you know, and so many people um, really, you know, open up. And, and so what many times, you know, seems like great in interviews, you know, really, I'll ask a very simple question. You know, uh, tell me about the way you felt when you first took that first hit of crack. Just really simple questions, because so many, because people want to open up and they want to talk and nobody asks people about their lives. You know, people really want to talk about their lives. And I try to give them a chance to, to do that and listen. One of the things that I really loved about your film was the incorporation of music, hip hop from the era in particular. Can you talk about that intertwined relationship between music in this era and what was happening on the streets? Yeah, we really wanted to kind of uh, set the scene. We really wanted to take you back to this era. And, you know, nothing um, does that better than music. Anybody listen to music that was popular, you know, when you were 15 or 16, you know, it takes you right back there. And mm -hmm. so I th we thought that music was hugely important to the film and that, that we wanted to basically have the film live in the soundtrack. That was really the beginning of, of hip hop. And, and also, you know, be, because, you know, hip hop really talks about the life and the inner workings of the inner city, so much of, of, of the music was actually about crack. Here's a story about a girl who was drinking on the air. It might be your mama, but don't you laugh. And so that we could really use that um, uh, to, to set the scene and, and to, to put you back in, in the era. The film ends on a really heartbreaking note. We have the neurologist, Dr. Hart. He closes it with a proverb about a man that goes to his old home and cries out, where are my friends? And only hears the question echoed back. I'm curious about why you chose that to close the film. Uh, I think that, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think that, that it was just a, an, an incredible closing. And we wanted to we wanted to close on a personal note. We felt that the film's arc in some ways is is from a very personal, you know, for the first time I sniffed cocaine, you know, to bigger and, and bigger, you know, uh, the, the government and incarceration. And, and that that all through that, we're, we're trying to weave in the personal. Um, but we wanted to end on back on the personal, you know, back mm. on how these people were affected and how their communities were affected, the people that you meet in the film. Although I think that it affected so many institutions and, and the government and incarceration, what it boils down to is, is how it affected people personally. 
What about you? I mean, you made this film. You spoke to all of these people. You were immersed in this story for a very long time while you were putting it together. Did you come out of the other end of this process with more or less hope uh, that we've learned some lessons from this era? Hmm. I think I have a, a little more hope. I think that, that hopefully the, this film will, you know, point out um, and make people think about, about the crack era. I think that, um, you know, we're dealing with the opioid epidemic, and so there, there's a, a real reflection there. I think that um, George Floyd's death and, and, and other things that had happened last summer uh, makes people think more about, you know, um, what other people in this country are going through. Um, but America has a, a short memory, and, and we'll, we'll kind of see what happens in the coming months and, and the coming years. Well, Stanley Nelson, your film is Crack, Cocaine, Corruption, and Conspiracy. Let's hope it helps jog our memories a bit, and everybody who watches it walks away uh, with the same feeling I did, which is both hopeful and hopeless at the same time. It's a great film. Thank you so much for talking to me about it. Oh, thank you. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to director Stanley Nelson. For more of my takes on true crime and how we cover it in the media, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down true crime documentaries, podcasts, and the latest in pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please subscribe to rate and review this show and share it with friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for our next episode on Night Stalker, the hunt for a serial killer. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hansdale Sue. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.